I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation about luxury, outdoor living, and partnerships. This is a special episode for me personally because I have a very special announcement to make about one of my own partnerships. Together, you and I have shared literally hundreds of conversations since the show started seven years ago. In that time, I have shared some absolutely incredible stories about design partnerships, and I am so happy to share a story about my own with you. Last year, at the West Edge Design Fair, I met Ryan Bloom, co-founder of Urban Bonfire. He moderated a really fun conversation at the show, and it ran here on Convo by Design. If you want to go back and listen, you can. It was episode 255, called Your Canvas for Outdoor Memories. Ryan and I kept in touch, and... An opportunity presented itself for us to work together. I was recently named the Director of Content and Growth for Urban Bonfire. I've taken on the role of content curator and creator, as well as creating new ways to help you, the designer, architect, developer, and builder, craft, entertaining, and activated outdoor spaces. It means being able to find Urban Bonfire products at your favorite retail showrooms. It means creating a truly unique trade program that will provide you designers, architects, with the tools and opportunities to collaborate. You've been asking and telling me that this is what you wanted for years, and now, through a remarkable brand, I have an opportunity to craft it and provide it for you. This is a fantastic partnership, and I'm thrilled to share it with you. This is Urban Bonfire's Ryan Bloom. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zenger a forward-acting brand that has built on the promise to provide designers and architects with the right materials to do their best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. This is a family business with over 65 years of global product discovery, sourcing, and manufacturing the finest products available. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program to make the specifying process simple with the support you need. They also have been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. Check out their collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Please also make sure to join us for an interactive video series called The Showroom, where you can find some of the most innovative designers talking about their creations. This is just another example of how Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. Check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online. WalkerZanger.com yeah, everyone has their own process, which which I think is great. And it's funny, too, because the Convo by Design audience got familiar with you. You've been on the show before um, as the moderator. Oh, yes. For your, um, your Canvas, Canvas for out, Canvas yeah. for Outdoor Memories at West yeah. Edge. Yeah, with Patty and Annette and Cesar. Yep, yep. And and that was that was from the West Edge Design Fair. That was a great conversation. Yeah, it was. And it's in- it's interesting. This is a good place for us to start because that's that's where you and I met. Um, that was was that 2019 or 2018? That was basically a year ago now. Okay, it was a it year was, ago. Uh, yeah, it was it was 20, 2019. And um, during that time, a, f- a few things have happened. The Lakers won. They did. They did. Dodgers are in the World Series. Hey, listen, you know what's really interesting? Um, total side note, but I've <laughs> I've got the coolest, and I mean the coolest, uh, throwback old school satin jackets for both the Lakers and the Dodgers. And I can tell you exactly when I got them. I got them in 1988. Uh, Kirk mm. Gibson, Lakers, Dodgers, Lakers, both won the championship that year. And it was just, it was bananas here in, in LA. And so to celebrate, I, I went and bought satin jackets. I guess that's what we did in the late eighties to celebrate. That was pretty, or those bobblehead characters of James Worthy and Byron Scott and Magic <laughs> and Kareem. I mean, those were just, those were just remarkable games to, uh, to watch. They were so much fun. It was just yeah, that idea of sh- that Showtime 
branding on a basketball team was just really, really amazing. Yeah, no, it was. And, and I, I go back to the jackets because I had recently given those to my kids and they think that they're the coolest thing on the planet. And remember, there were no Canadian NBA teams at that point. Right. So we were watching now there was in Vancouver started and then was moved. But Toronto, obviously, you know, has really grown in terms of popularity. And, you know, now it's a huge sport here. But at that point, we still had a professional baseball team. You know, Montreal had the Expos and, and that was just, you know, I remember going to uh, to the Big O, as they call it, the Olympic Stadium uh, to watch games when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, it's must have been an incredible time to be in, be in L.A. during those years. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but, but it was fun because so you and I met a year ago. Um, we collaborated on that on that panel, which you did a masterful job. Um, I really enjoyed that panel. You and I had spoken throughout the year and I am so excited and super proud. You know, I have a new role with Urban Bonfire as director of content and and growth, which I am absolutely thrilled about. So first of all, thank you. Thank you. I mean, the feeling is very mutual. I'm, uh, we're super excited to have uh, someone of your experience and, uh, and expertise helping to, uh, helping to guide us. It it's, feels like a big win for me. Well, and, and it's a big win for me too. I'm absolutely thrilled. I, I love the brand. And with that, I'm, I'm also a huge fan of that, that superhero origin story. And uh, as origin stories go for brands, you have a pretty cool one too. Um, it's extremely personal to you. You have this really special partnership with Stéphane Marchand, your, your co-founder. And I was hoping that you would just sort of start back at around and maybe a little bit before 2013 and sort of explain the origin and how this all came together. Well, to give you the origin in a story, it would have to go back really to 1980. Um, I was six years old. My late father and mother decided to buy a country house an hour north of Montreal. And my father, who was incredibly conservative, um, the idea of asking anyone for help, borrowing money was like, difficult for him at a, at a cellular level. And he swallowed his pride and asked his father-in-law, to lend him $28,000 um, to buy this little country house an hour north of the city. And it wasn't winterized. Uh, it hadn't been used in a very, very long time. And the property was in need of tremendous work. Dock was in the water, trees down, fences down, just complete neglect. And it was a very apparent then that myself and my brother John's role was not going to be just to use the home. We were going to be heavily involved in transforming that property. Now, I would say that the amount of work and physical labor at this young age that, that, that we did, by some people's standards, might be construed as that's kind of crazy that six and seven-year-olds are using axes and learning how to like, you know, take nails out of stuff and starting fires. But it was just very much part of the way we did things. And, and I was given a lot of creative flexibility and sort of task that I think matured me at a very young age. Um, and what started with this whole idea of this bonfire pit was my dad basically built a bonfire pit in the middle of the property to literally have no other purpose but to burn off debris. Like there was just no way of getting rid of this much wood. And, and it started as something that was 100% functional. And over time, it transformed into something very memorable. And it went from, you know, burning an old piece of wood from a dock to somebody bringing guitar on a Saturday night and the place where we would roast marshmallows, our friends would come over and it became really a, a community gathering place for the people around our lake. And it was the greatest joy of my youth. And I learned a lot from it. I learned the principles of sort of a come as you are ideology where there were people around that fire pit who were multimillionaires and people who were blue collar workers all enjoying that experience at a very similar level. Um, 
And that stayed with me for a very long time as I grew and through school. I always loved food and restaurants. I, I put myself through university as a waiter uh, and I was always very active in, in food. It was just something I was very passionate about. And what I wanted to do with Urban Bonfire in the original iteration was to merge that experience of that country suite with the city smart, the urban need for style and design and curation and merchandising. And that very personal story of really the most meaningful times with my dad, um, that is what created Urban Bonfire as a, as a brand and as, as a, a very much of a personal reflection of me. So when did, when did Stefan become part of this? And it's interesting too. I'm also, uh, I'm fascinated by the pivot, you know, the idea that you go in and this is going to be a retail play and then realizing, no, that's not what this is. This is something same, same vein, but completely different. Completely different. So I met Stefan working on a project that I was involved with then, and I still am now, called the Rustique Pie Kitchen, which is an award-winning bakery and pie shop in Montreal uh, that I'm still a partner in today, uh, as is Stefan. And I met Stefan through my wife, um, whose dear friend had hired Stefan to build them a wine cellar. And Stefan at that time had developed an incredible business for design and furniture making using reclaimed materials. So he was buying wood from old barns and taking old spokes from train tracks and just had an incredible eye for taking materials that other people would see as done and turning them into the pieces of a space that created true character and voice. And when I met him, hired him to originally work on this bakery project. And then I articulated to him the vision for Urban Bonfire. And as luck would have it, he had very similar childhood experiences of going to the country with his family in upstate New York and really understood that kind of outdoor thing. And originally Urban Bonfire was, as you said, it was a retail shop. It was 400 square feet. We were selling Kamado Joes and big green eggs and grills and spices and accessories and wood chips and all this type of stuff. Um, and that's really how it started. And that was our business plan. I never thought about doing an outdoor kitchen. It wasn't anywhere in, in my plan. I think I've shared with you, my business plan was really, I want to do what William Sonoma is doing for the indoors. I want to do that for the outdoors. So I think there's a big miss in the way today's consumer is interacting with this category. And I think there's a lot of gap to fill. And that's how we started. And I said, you know, I want you to create, even though it's only 400 square feet, I want you to bring the same warmth and charm and authenticity into that space, which, which he did. Um, and then as we started that business, I would effectively work with him as we got our first request for an outdoor kitchen, which followed the historic way the consumers uh, purchased outdoor kitchens, which was they started with the appliances. So we had a customer who said to us, I want a smoker, I want a fridge, and I want a grill, but I want you to build it into an outdoor kitchen. And I could do that because I had Stefan as my partner. I could never have done that if it was just me. I don't have any form of a construction background or an expertise. And from that, we really pivoted there into at first uh, a duality business where we had retail and outdoor kitchen. We had our own line of sauces and spices. We were doing events and consulting work and we were doing content series for some of the largest, if not the largest grill manufacturer in the world. And that came to a point in 2017 where we had some important decisions to make. And we realized that we were really in six different businesses. Any one of them or any two of them could absolutely work on their own with focus and attention, but trying to do six different things, trying to be in the outdoor kitchen business and the retail business and the consulting business and the events business and the spice and sauce business, it was just too much to do. And we had to put real restriction and parameters, which was tough 
for me because I am more of the macro 40,000 foot guy who wants to run and do everything because I'm passionate as hell. And we came to the year saying, if we don't do this and we don't stop and focus, the whole company could actually go under. We were jack of all trades, master of none. In a market that is tremendously seasonal, where, you know, from April 15th to October 15th, we were having a great time. We had money in the bank. We were doing great. And then October 15th would come and it would literally be full days, weeks, months with zero revenue. Now, trying to attract staff with no outside investment, trying to keep staff, attract staff, keep things going, very hard when you're covered in snow for five months straight. So we made the decision in 2017 to take all this experience and all this knowledge of what it's really like to be a dealer and a retailer and commercialize our line into what Urban Bonfire is now and shut down everything else and focus 100% of our time and attention on this category. And that's exactly what we did. And what's, what's really interesting is in focusing on the category, but also really micro-focusing, laser-focusing on the product and, and saying, you know, this, this product is going to be something that we're going to, we're going to fill the white space that exists in this segment. And we're going to do it in such a way that we're going to think of everything. We're going to make a lot of mistakes and then we're going to learn from those mistakes and we're going to make the product better. I kind of want, I kind of want you to sort of go through how you, how you put this together, everything from the Marine grade aluminum cabinetry to the, to the self-leveling, to the um, toe kicks, to the, to the, even to the micro drill pre-drilled holes in the back that will drain out moisture and water uh, to the, to the magnets that are put into the cabinets so that you get that really tight snug fit when you close a door that you understand that this is a quality product to the manner in which, you know, if, if you're using one kind of, um, you're using one brand of grill or you're using a similarly sized other brand of grill, you don't have to get a whole new cabinet. You just need to have a, a, a different, a different, molding a different set put together which already exists by the way because you already make for all of these grill brands you already make the insert they just have to be um and they're they're completely interchangeable and you know creating videos so that it's so easy all of this all of this thought that goes into product development to make this something more and i think this is what it comes down to it's not about putting a grill in someone's backyard. It's about your kitchen outdoors. I think at the core of it, um, I am highly, highly sensitive to criticism. And I don't like when a product or a service that I am behind um, is less than what the intended consumer experience is supposed to be. Um, so what we have done in terms of product improvement, and you mentioned, for example, the magnetic latch system we put on to our doors. And that's something that came out only about a year and a half ago. And it was a direct result of one of our dealers calling and saying, my client just called and gave me the height of shit because they're on a 51st floor condo and the wind just blew the door right off of the cabinet. And I hear that and I like want to, like bite my lip down. Like I want to be creating positive memories for people, not challenges. So I take that responsibility very seriously and on a very, very personal level. To go back to the original part of the first part of your question, one of the things that we had, which I think really set us apart from other companies in this industry, and there are some amazing ones, you know, there, there's Danver and Brown Jordan, there's NatureCast, there's Kalamazoo, there's John Michael Kitchens. There are some incredibly pioneering companies who've done an amazing job in this industry. 
the one thing that made us really different is that we were able to make our decisions based on what consumer demand was for our product and not what our factory could supply. So when you locally here in Montreal, as, as we started, when you do several hundred kitchens over a few years, you start to see there are patterns and metrics as to what size of kitchens are most important. Uh, what are some of the challenges with installation? How many people want powder coating and paint versus raw stainless steel look, for example? And when you amalgamate all of this data, certain things start to become very, very clear. And I'll just give you one example. Historically, outdoor cabinets have been made in stainless steel. Whether you're John Michael, Danver, Kalamazoo, they all make in stainless steel. It is the perceived material for outdoor cabinetry. What we experience, and I'm not saying in any way they're wrong, I'm right, I'm saying this is different. What we experienced was that out of almost 300 kitchens, with the exception of two, everybody wanted color and powder coating. And if you're powder coating stainless steel, what is the point of using stainless? You're basically taking away the look that people want. You can't drill stainless steel on site during an installation. And let me tell you, Stefan, more than me, went through hell on certain days where the quick connect valve is four inches from where it was supposed to be on the plan. Now, if you can't drill on site and it's hard to manipulate, that makes installation really, really tough. And when things oxidize, and even if you're using outdoor grade 304, if it gets wet, you start to see little rust or tarnish or green. You start to learn about things. You start to learn that most kitchens, 80% fall within these size parameters. And these are the appliances that are sought after. So what we did is we took all this data and said, it is impossible for us to be everything to everyone. We would rather be the right choice for 85 to 90% of requests than try to be in the one at a time business where everyone is so custom that the operational risk is massive on every project. And that's what we did. And we took the things that are frustrating at the installation level and why we believed that luxury appliance, which has been our main category of dealer partner, had historically not gone into the outdoor kitchen arena. If you look at the best of the best luxury appliance retailers in North America, whether it's uh, Yale in Boston, Apt in Chicago, Snyder Diamond, Perch, A1, none of them were in the outdoor kitchen business outside of the appliances because to design a kitchen takes a level of expertise. Installation is tough. These are things that were very challenging to do at that level. And we wanted to simplify it in a way that it made sense and it could be sold with ease, displayed with ease, and installed with ease. And in doing so, we really tried to engineer in thoughtful features that the consumer, dealer, designer, installer would find useful and beneficial and would further promote the idea that it doesn't have to be incredibly complicated to achieve the aesthetic and the, the, the usefulness result that the consumer is looking for. And that's what we did. And just with a constant need and thirst to improve, because I say I'm we're never done. We're never done. We constantly are thinking about ways to improve and add to what we do. And that's just a big, a big piece of it. And that's that's at a cultural level within within the organization. I think um, there's also this this sense of exploration, right? And a willingness. You have to have a willingness to fail in order to succeed because no great company ever gets there straight up. There is no, you know, I, I coach youth soccer and when I'm, when I'm coaching the girls, I, I, will, I will tell them, uh, you know, after a loss, as well as after a win, you don't learn much from a win. You really don't. There's really usually not much to learn from a win because you, you made a minimum number of errors, most likely. You performed the way you're supposed to. But in a loss, that's where you learn. You know, when you make a mistake, that's where you learn. And I think the same thing goes to, to business. And I think that many companies um, really try to avoid at all costs 
putting themselves in a position to make an error. But if you, if you do that, you also limit your, your upside potential and your learning opportunity. And I, I think never has that been more evident than it is, than it is right now. You find yourself, you know, they talk about the, the concept of an overnight success, right? You're just automatically overnight. You're a success. It, it, forget about the eight years that you put in trying to build this and get successful. But because of those eight years of work, you didn't know back in 2017 that we were going to be in the midst of a global pandemic where people were going to be looking at their space and thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with this? What do I do now? And most importantly, now that I know what I really want, what am I going to do in the future? And I'm curious, how do you feel the events of 2020 have have affected urban bonfire both now but most more importantly in the future well i think your point is really it's it's an important one and i think this goes to the often misconception that you see incredible brands whether it's starbucks or apple or peloton and if you dig deep and you read the books of the founders or you listen to a, a podcast like How I Built This and you listen to the story of the founder of Peloton, today it's this incredible brand. They're public. It's incredible. But when you dig deep and you hear the story of at times having to put payroll on credit card just to stay afloat, I don't know of an entrepreneur or a success story that did not have near failure or at least the tolerance to risk that in order to get there. And I think that is true of every great company and, and the need to really respond to what the market and customers are, are telling you is, is a fundamentally important part of any entrepreneur. Um, this has been without a doubt the most, um, the most difficult and the most humbling year of our of our history and at the same time the most successful so we are seeing you know for really still a startup and i still consider us a startup and that really is is our culture our voice and our brand is really starting to reach the audience and people that we have spent a long time trying to reach and that feels really good one of the only, as far as I can tell, one of the only silver linings of this horrific pandemic, which has had catastrophic effects on people's lives, the economy, their outcomes, uh, uh, their thoughts about the future. The one silver, I, th I think that if you can think about the positive of this, it has brought a lot of people and families together or back together in a far more authentic way than they had been probably for a long time. Whether that was, we're not going out to eat, we're not going to our friends, I'm not going on a business trip. So we're having dinner as a family to every night, six or seven days a week. And we are seeing the beautiful simplicity in what outdoor space can be with very simple activation and i think about this frequently you hear parents often today talking about you know my kids are inside playing video games and i wish they just went outside and built a fort and i was watching a you know an adam sandler movie recently called grown-ups and he goes to this uh he goes back to his childhood uh, vacation home in in michigan and his kids play video games and he's like this big star in la and he comes back and he's just watching his son saying throw the rock, please skip the rock. Just, just, just throw it, just skip it. And that sort of, and I think that we as kids were forced by virtue of being outdoors to mold and create the world that we wanted to be in and play in, whether that was forts or flowers or gardening or sports or helping our parents with certain tasks or whatever that was, being outside didn't have walls and ceilings and lights. You lived and died by the sun was coming up, the sun was going down. It was raining, it was snowing, it was buggy, it wasn't. Your mom was yelling at you to come in for dinner or she wasn't. And that ability to create and envision and imagine was what I think most kids gained 
even unknowingly being outside. And that is, to me, one of the silver linings of being able to turn a deck or a balcony or a roof into a room. And I am really, I am kind of humbled and honored that the products that we design and we make and we sell actually become a piece, not all, but a piece of people's canvas for creating these types of memories outdoors, whether it's on their own, whether it's with their families, their friends, their loved ones, but it is, I think it's very important and I think it creates incredible context and the demand has never been higher to try to transform these spaces into usable rooms that are meaningful. And in the same way that I believe in most people's indoor homes and environments, the kitchen is that central gathering place. It certainly is for me. My son does his homework there. It's where I have a glass of wine with my wife. It's where my daughter does her, you know, her coloring. It's all in the kitchen. And why would the same heart of people's lives not apply in the outdoor environment? And that's what we try to be. Well, I think what's really interesting is you've you've maintained remarkable consistency in that you you have you have focused refocused the brand on what it was originally designed to do. It's that it's to engage those feelings that you had in the 80s and 90s outside by the bonfire next to the lake with family getting together, shifting to the fact that the the kitchen is the heart of the home, always has been, always will be. And the, uh, the kitchen outdoors is not a replacement to that, but it's an extension of that. And I think too, you know, we've had conversations about this before, and I love this, that the product is, you, you talked about having, you know, six months of cold, five months of snow and creating something that, that still works in that environment, that it not only, not only is still functional, but it was designed to accommodate for that, which I think is certainly unconventional thinking requires far more logistical thought, but the ability to do that, to not only comfortably, but to have both form and function and comfort with all of the things that one is able to do in an outdoor kitchen. And I'm, I, I'm curious your thoughts on how you see the ideas of your kitchen outdoor expanding over time. Now that the, the ability to do this really does exist, right? And you continue, you continue to think about the future and future projects. I feel like after the events of 2020, leading into 21, when people can start getting out again and doing things, um, I don't know, I'm just, it, it makes the mind spin a little bit when you think about the potential. And I think because when, when many would consider the landscape, the, the outside space was thought of that as space. Um, and I think to this day, many designers, most people still consider it space as opposed to functional zones. The way that you would think about your house, you wouldn't just look at a house and say, okay, I'm just gonna build space, right? And then we'll see what happens there. But why would the same consideration take place outside? It's your land and you can manage it any way you want to for the most part. So why not employ it in a zone strategy where you have a kitchen here and an entertainment there? And I feel like you're, you're on the front end of, of this sort of massive change in thought. Well, you're right. And I think there are a lot of factors that come into play. So you're right that the indoor kitchen and the outdoor, yes, both hearts, but I'm, I am practical enough to realize that the indoors is really obviously dominant and you can think about it as right hand, left hand. So we've got two hands. I write with my right. I'm a righty. I need it. But without my left, it, it doesn't have to be looked at as equal. It can be looked at, you know, I, I, I need both. And it can be looked at in, in that way to create balance. Um, and as it relates to material and that, I mean, that type of thing, I mean, even at the, 
luxury affluent style driven consumer level show me show me somebody who says i am happy to have a product or i need more maintenance i will be thrilled to oil that wood or polish this or stain that or get someone to do show me that person and i'll show you a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset so one of the things that was important was maximize usage with the absolute lowest most minimal possible maintenance so we are putting all that focus into enjoyment and not into having to maintain yet something else. And I learned this, and, and we used to get the question often when we were here in Quebec, saying, you know, it's, I, I go to Florida for the winters, or it, it's, it's cold half the year, and why would, I, why would I do this? And then I look at statistics and say, you know, Quebec has more pools per capita than any province in Canada and any state in the U.S. So if you're going to live here, don't bitch about the winter. You're here. Celebrate the great time and enjoy it the same way you do your golf course or your sports car or whatever it is that you do. To focus on the negative of something, whether it's you know too hot in Palm Springs to use it, well, there's shade and there's cooling. There's almost always an answer to get maximum usage out of, out of a space. I think what's become really interesting is that the economics – for the homeowner, whether they're thinking about resale in the immediacy or not, is remarkable. Outdoor space activation is, and this could be argued by different organizations, but any legitimate one would say has, if not the highest, one of the highest return on investments for every dollar you spend. And it's because it's still very much in its infancy. But the beauty of the outdoor space, and I just really, this sort of hit me a couple weeks ago. The outdoor space is really quite the executive summary for the indoor home. So in indoors, you've got a kitchen, a dining room, a living room, an area that you read. It's in different rooms. The outside typically is much smaller. So you need to take and extract the best elements of how you want to live in and use that space and morph the outdoors to be an executive summary. So... Some people need a dining room and a big table. At my home in my outdoor space, I don't have an outdoor dining table because I use my indoor dining room once or twice a year at best. I eat in my kitchen. It can be basically taking the best elements of outdoors and turning it into something that works very well in a smaller space. And I think that's one of the really fun parts about the outdoors is you've got less space to work with and you can make it much more meaningful and useful because you're not stuck with the confines of a home must have a dining room. It must have a living room that is 20 by 20. It must have. There's no musts in the outdoors. You can pick and choose what is meaningful. And that's why we have clients who do kitchens that are, you know, 60 linear feet of cabinetry with every appliance under the sun and others who want a fridge and a wine bar situation because they enjoy drinking wine with their friends and everything in between. And I think that's really fun. And when you get into things like fire and heat and shade and lighting, and if you want to go baller and have a flat screen that emerges from a wall so you can watch, you know, the Rams play the Patriots and that's your jam. Fantastic. And if you want to have an outdoor shower and a place where you can meditate and do yoga because you're inspired by, like, I am going to Costa Rica and that's the place that I reconnect, you can do that. And that's the absolute beauty of it. There are no rules or imposed rules on outdoor in the same way there are in more conventional interior design that has certain standards that almost have to be met. I need a kitchen, I need a dining room, I need X number of bathrooms, things like that. The outdoor is a blank canvas. And I think along those lines, it's very interesting to hear you speak about this. Um, we started a podcast at Urban Bonfire called The Fireside Chat, hosted by Ryan Bloom. And I have, I, I've heard a couple of the episodes, well, I've heard them all because I'm producing them, but I, I heard in one of the episodes uh, that you were doing with architect Doug Burge who was talking about his approach to the outdoor spaces and outdoor entertaining areas that he works on in Houston, Texas. And he says, you know what? Yeah, it's hot. So we air condition it. Okay. So we cool it to your point, 
that you're, it's open to interpretation by the limits of what one is capable of thinking of an outdoor space and how it should be. By the same token, you know, people are also looking at the indoor space now. Do I need a formal living room? Do I use it? No. Well, I don't have to have it. Do I use a formal dining? No. Well, do I have to have it? No, probably not. I could have a better space. I could have a better functional space in what was traditionally there. And I'm curious for you, now that you're doing the Fireside Chat and you're doing your own podcast and you get to hear the stories of what amazing creatives are doing with these with these spaces it's like it is their canvas and they're creating these works of art that has to be incredibly motivational for you at the same time it really is because i think one of the great challenges historically was that outdoor space was it, this is certainly not a generalization, but in so many cases, and, and I've seen it firsthand, having, again, worked here with local clients for a lot of urban bonfires history, I would visit these homes that were designed down to the knob on the closet door of the baby's armoire. And yet the outdoor was a rusty old barbecue sitting in the corner but yet when you actually ask the questions to that homeowner and their family and their children, they actually love to be outdoors. And there is such disconnect because traditionally architects, interior designers didn't really transpose their vision. The questions they were asking, that idea of starting with a blank canvas to the outdoors, it was that is the landscaper's job and sort of we left the outdoors and my job sort of finishes at the at the patio door and that was I think very much at the to the detriment or the demise of the consumer because they actually have a stylistic and a functionality based role that is interwoven and I think that's changing at the fastest rate ever, even more so, again, coming back to your early question, in 2020, it is alarming to see how many interior designers are dropping the term interior, and they're now designers because they are cognizant and aware that if they are not bringing the outdoors in and the indoors out, they're not necessarily aligning with the vision of their clients. And I think this is a function of demand. I think this is a, a function of having a lot more options and things that can be done outdoors that didn't exist 10 years ago, whether that's materials on furniture, shade structures, heating, outdoor cabinetry, appliances. There's very little that you can't do outdoors today. And that was not the case 10 years ago. So huge, huge um, improvement in technology on getting a lot more usage and style in outdoor material compositions. Well, I think it's it's interesting too because you know we you and I have had conversations about the business of design, and I've had conversations with designers for years and years and years about the business of design. It's really interesting to me because if you talk to twenty designers, you will get probably fifteen different business models and business plans and 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 profit centers and the manner in which that they approach how they create what they create and how they do it. And it's really interesting because there is no formal model. You have some designers and to, to your point, you would have them ending at the patio. And, and even years ago, I would talk to designers who would say, yeah, I really like to focus on, um, on bringing the indoors out and the outdoors in. It's like, well, what do you do? Well, we put in a nano wall. And then it stops there. And then again, to your point, it's like, well, then the landscape, architect or the landscaper works on this, you know, many cases to your point, they, they put concrete down, they put some plants in some shrubbery and then the, the grill, which will then rust, you know, in the, in the future years, will sit, will sit in the corner by all of this other incredible built-in uh, design. But it's fascinating to me that as, as much as you talk to designers about the business model, that they would not extend what it is that they do to an outdoor space. To me, that's the same. You know, you have to look at what other businesses do and, and how, where they find their profit centers and how they 
you know, how they do what they do. And you look at an auto dealer and can you imagine if all an auto dealer did was sell cars, but they don't make, they don't make their money off selling cars. They make their money in the service department. They make their money in the parts department. That's their model. You know, you, you look at, you look at the airlines, um, the airlines have been hit hard, right? So they look, well, what are we going to do? Well, okay, we're going to start charging for bags. People don't want to pay for bags, but when they started charging for bags, it actually enhanced the experience because people no longer felt like they could just bring in these big oversized bags as often as it, it actually created a better user experience. It kind of, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you think about it. It's not intuitive, but it worked and it was interesting, but people have to try. And so I think, you know, to your point, this, these conversations and listening to what some of these creatives are doing with these spaces is simply amazing. And yes, budget is, is often part, a major part of the conversation. And yes, space is often a major part of the conversation, but you know, I am truly impressed by creatives who can do more with less and create amazing spaces where maybe there isn't a lot of space, but they just do more with it. That being said, as you, as you built this company and you built out the product line, sort of two things, your R and D sort of how you, how urban bonfire develops the product and what it's made to do and how it's made to work interchangeably, you know, the universal track system, the fact that you have interchangeable things, that there are planters and backsplashes, other things that make the experience as opposed to just the grill itself. I wanted you to talk about that. And I also wanted to know your thoughts on what it means to be made in Canada. Well, I think going back to the first point about the economic models for designers, and it just had me thinking that, you know, really talented designers, it's so much more than just creative. If they are really trying to get to the real level or the real understanding of what their clients' wants and needs are, it goes so far beyond space. They need to be part psychologist, part economist, part sociologist. They really need to dig deep and truly understand if they're going to have a profound impact on the future space that these people live in, it's more than just, as you described it, the creative side. And, and I've often wondered how I don't know a lot of people who really want to work with multiple professionals without the cohesion of someone or a firm that understands from a top-down level what is the common vision for whether it's a home, a space, a business. I think that is a true, um, that's a, quite a rarity and what today's consumer is really looking at. And to your point, this is why companies that are offering more services to their clients in a cohesive way are winning, whether that is Apple with hardware and software and all of those entertainment, all of those in, I think that's really how they are, they are winning today. Um, and I think that holds true at the designer level, which for such a long time, there was that fragmentation where to your point, a landscape architect, and this is not to, landscape architecture to me is a brilliant area of, of study and expertise to bring things together with levels and, 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 and stone and, and vegetation and lighting. That is a true art. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. But I often find that if the landscape architect is entirely responsible for that space beyond the nano wall, as you just described, are they aligned enough with the client's expected use of that space to understand human behavior and the entertainment strategy and how these people want to celebrate 4th of July. The interior designer often does. And this is where I think the idea that the emerging design professional who sees a holistic view of indoor and outdoor as one is going to emerge as the individual or the firm that is going to absolutely win as the as the identity of what space is and, and can be. 
And I think that's, again, just getting started at this point. On the, on the, on the side of uh, how we have created product around that, um, one of the beauties of outdoor, unlike indoor, is that is, it is often, in most cases, far more macro than indoor. So indoors, you have typically a lot more restriction on a pillar, uh, the angle of a wall, uh, where the hood vent has to go, where windows are placed, all of these types of things, which is, you know, which makes indoor kitchen design really, really complex. Fillers, three inch this, angles, it's very, very, outdoors is typically a lot more forgiving. I've got a deck that's 20 by 20, I've got 10 by 10, I've got a balcony, which is why in outdoor we see a lot more of, you know, we see plans and we see these all the time. We get full architectural plans from a client and the indoor kitchen is designed down to the micro one eighth of an inch with all the specificity on color, on door style, on knob, on color, on all this type. And outdoors it's 16 feet kitchen. Which yeah. for me is is the best because that allows us to then go from that macro space and backfill with our modules and what we do that addresses the needs and wants of the of the client in terms of appliances, in terms of accessories and how they're going to use it. Well, can I just if I can just interject there for Please. one second because I I just sure. want to point out it is really interesting too and in some of the things that Urban Bonfire has that the company has done is you know. The self-leveling toe kick, I mentioned that before, but it's it's important, right? Because it enables a, a level of installation to take place. One could never really do this kind of thing with their with their indoor kitchen, right? But you've taken this high level, high luxury approach and made it so that that's something that can that can be account, accounted for in the outdoors where it's not crafted to the half inch, right? But also the fact that you have a trim kit that is customized for for different brands, which means you don't have to change the whole system. When you want to upgrade to something new, you can simply get a new trim kit, keep what you already have. And then there's the fact that you have, you know, three quarters of an inch is what is the pre-specified uh, height for, for the countertop, right? Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants to go with a different product, you're going with, you know, concrete and they're it's going to be an inch okay if you tell us what it is then we can adjust the trim kit to accommodate for that and to your point all of these details have been considered thought out and applied to make this something that is incredibly custom the way that it, the indoor kitchen has always been thought of very true. And if you think about certain elements, again, we, we really try to think about not only the installer, but the long-term real use of the product. And anything can look pretty and sexy and gorgeous in an indoor showroom or at a trade show because you're in a controlled environment setting it up. Now, if you're in an indoor kitchen, you're typically on a pretty level floor, which makes scribing toe kick, which is typically made from wood or MDF, very easy. My 14-year-old with a with a saw can conscribe toe kick if it's made out of wood or MDF. Now try applying that same level of craftsmanship, craftsmanship, pardon me, outdoors where it's too hot, too cold, it's raining, you've got slope or uneven surface, and you're dealing with metal. Scribing toe kick on site is an extremely challenging thing to do outdoors. And if you think about consumer behavior, it is possible that depending on where the kitchen is, leaves can get in under a cabinet depending on where they come from. Or a client is going to Hawaii for the winter and wants to shut off their gas valve, whatever it may be. If you have a long piece of toe kick, again, thinking future about consumer behavior, pulling that off, doing what you have to do and putting it back, it's not impossible, but it's a bit of a pain in the ass. I wanted to set something up where you could take off a piece of your toe kick do what you had to do and put it back on all in a under three minute time frame, And that's what we did. So we have really modeled ourselves on, yes, of course, look and style and beauty is critical, 
but also practicality in terms of usage and long-term, very important. And to the earlier point you mentioned about our trim kits, if you think of a traditional outdoor kitchen design in the old way they were done with frames and stucco and stone or brick, if you wanted to change out your grill after three years or five or 10, whether you wanted higher performance, you didn't like it anymore, uh, you just won the lottery and you wanted to upgrade, whatever those reasons may be, in most, not in all, but in the vast majority of cases, you literally need to scrap that entire kitchen. But if I'm in an indoor environment, I can replace my fridge or my range pretty easily. We wanted a system that could adapt and grow with people because we see it, although yes, it is called an outdoor kitchen and cabinetry, we want to position this as really a line of luxury outdoor furniture that can grow with the user. And why things, for example, like our track system, I can't stand in traditional outdoor kitchen design, for example, that you have these cutouts and these access doors that are made by the grill brands that you would never see an indoor design principle. You'd never go into someone's indoor kitchen and see a stainless steel access door that the grill brand made that you would open and see a hollow cavity that led to nowhere. It defies logic to me. It's not functional space, but that has been one of the tolerated ways of building outdoors for almost its entire history. So I said, and Stefan said, if it doesn't work indoor, we're not going to do it outdoor. And in doing that, in our design principle at a fundamental level, we have to say no to a lot of things. But we believe at, at, in fundamentally that we are actually we are doing actual service to the consumer on a long-term basis. So why we built in our track system is if you want a garbage and recycling module in your kitchen at time of purchase, great. And next year, if you decide, you know what, I don't really use it which in our data is about 70% of people, you can pop it out and you don't even need a screwdriver and you can replace it with more storage space or another shelf or another drawer. And that ease and flexibility of really adapting to user experience in real time terms is very important to us because I consider our product to be a forever product. I don't see this as a you buy one and 10 years later you need to buy another one. I want to be in someone's home for life. And that's the way we needed to build in that adaptability. And that's what we've done. How do you think, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking for the crystal ball right now a little bit. You know, when, when we get back out, when things get back to, and it's funny too, I don't want to call them normal. Let's just call them uh, pre-March 12th. When things get back to pre-March 12th thinking, um, how, is, how is the industry going to be forever, forever changed? And how do you see Urban Bonfire adapting to that? Well, I think that regardless of what um, readaptation if you want to call it as a term as we, we come out of pandemic whether that is based on time vaccine social norms whatever the context is of that i think the consumer behavior will be forever changed and i think that has to do with a lot of things one i think that people have as i mentioned earlier on with all of the negatives and the pain and suffering that this pandemic has brought, I think that people are experiencing the silver lining and that effect will, you will have, we will have continuity on. I also think that for today's consumer, access to the elements they need to enjoy the outdoor space has never been easier. So example, I'm having a bunch of people over for a barbecue. I want to get premium steaks, lobster, vegetables, wine, whatever that may be. I used to have to go out to the farmer's market or one of our local markets or, or a Whole Foods or a premium selection of uh, the butcher and the baker and the, the, the artisan vegetable uh, sort of uh, store or, or shop. Today, all of that product is available to be delivered at home. 
far easier to group together, whether it's from one store or a combination of, whether you use uh, meal services with ingredients, it is far easier today for the consumer to have wow factor in their cooking and entertaining than it ever has been because everything's at their fingertips. And there's just a huge network of available content and and I am the first to say, and I used to talk about this when when I gave uh, when I gave speeches on this. I think that the celebrity chef is kind of the new rock star, you know, the you know the the Bobby Flay is the new Mick Jagger because he is allowing people, you know, I can't get up on screen and sing, or I can't get up on stage and sing like Bono or or, or Mick Jagger. Far from it. But if I follow, if I buy quality ingredients and with a little trial and error, and I follow Bobby Flay. If he's your jam or, or, or Thomas Keller or, or any one of the most incredible chefs down to local chefs here in Montreal, you know, like, like, like Dave McMillan and, and Fred Moran from Joe Beef and I follow their recipe book. I might not be able to achieve it a hundred percent, but with a little practice and b- basic ingredients and equipment, I could probably nail it at 92, 93, 95. And my audience and my guests are going to see the wow factor in that. And that's fun. And that's very rewarding for the person or the family or the couple who are putting that on. So I think the idea of staycationing and home-based entertainment, both an indoor and outdoor environment, is, again, just in its infancy. Because finally today, I think for most, not all, but for most people, it is way cooler, way more fun to have an experience cooking and entertaining at home than it is to go out at one third the cost, regardless of how wealthy you are. And I think there's something very fun and authentic about people crowding around or sitting at the stool and drinking wine, talking about real things with real people versus the sort of the bullshit of going out for like the foie gras and the little, like, I think people are just at a very different level today of the types of experiences that they're seeking. And it brings and it brings us back to where we started with that feeling that is so difficult to recreate. And that is that feeling of friends, family around the bonfire, whether it's at the lake, at the beach or in your backyard. Um, and, and I think it's it's that special. It's the experience that that people are so desperately seeking right now and to your point i think that i think that that's going to be you know the experience is the thing of the future i was sitting this year at the end of the summer i think it was in august sitting up up at the country house where i still spend time with my wife my kids i share the property with my brothers their wives their children it really it's become a place that our family comes together and we were there eating empanadas and my buddy Charles was over he rented the house a couple doors down him and his wife who are dear friends and made this incredibly beautiful paella outdoors and the bonfire was going and it was one of those nights that you just have to take a picture of because there are no words for the beauty of the sunset and the lake and the mirror it was just perfect and I and I said to myself and I actually think I said to my wife there is nothing that I would trade this experience. You could offer me the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. You could offer me a six-star with a butler in Dubai. There is literally, that I can think of, there is no experience for any amount of money that I would trade this for. And I'm sitting in shorts and flip-flops and eating an empanada. And there is nothing that I would swap this for. At the root of it, that's what it all comes down to. It's where do you feel just perfectly grounded and present and where there's nothing more that you want or need. And I think that for me personally and for a lot of people that I know and interact with, it seems like that is an easier feeling to accomplish in an outdoor environment because there is... There is natural progression. The sun rises and sets. 
The lake moves or it doesn't. The wind blows the trees or it doesn't. The the sound of, and it sounds so cheesy, but, you know, in the morning, the sound of the birds, and that, y- y- you can't artificially create that. You have to absorb it in a way that is in constant flux. And I think that not being able to control stuff is what actually moves us versus the need to control everything. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Ryan, this was great. Um, thank you. Thank you for making the time to do this. I really, really appreciate it. The pleasure, such a, the pleasure is completely mine. Thank you. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Questions were just, I, I love talking about this because it makes what I do on a daily basis. It brings me back to why I do it. And even though I wake up every morning, and I am literally in love with what I do. It just taking an hour and a half to talk about it and think about it with, with specificity. It's, 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 it's important for me. So I, I thank you for, for, for inviting me. Thank you, Ryan, for the time and for this incredible opportunity. Please subscribe to the show so you can catch every episode of Convo by Design. Ask Alexa or Siri, just say, hey, Siri. Play Convo by Design podcast. Now playing podcast Convo by Design. You can follow the show on the socials as well, at Convo by Design with an X on Instagram, and check out the YouTube channel for videos from some of your favorite episodes. Thank you for listening, and until next week, be well, and keep creating. Mm